0: Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 14th, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. Hey, For the full hour, Dr. Lori Wiener from the National Institute of Health and oncologist Dr. Jamie Ferdiani, and clinical coordinator Kristen Casper, both of those two from the Children's Hospital Orange County, are our guests this, as I said, for the full hour. They are building an important document, Voicing My Choices, a guide for seriously or terminally ill adolescents and young adults toward expressing how they want to be comforted, supported, treated, and remembered. So we'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. With the number of adolescent and young adults living with serious illnesses such as cancer, growing globally, it's really a great opportunity to have a formidable team take up the work they're doing to alleviate the anxieties and complications that end-of-life communication poses. Dr. Lori Wiener at the National Institute of Health, Kirsten Kasper of the Children's Hospital of Orange County, and Dr. Jamie Ferdiani, that talk as well are my guests i'll introduce them very briefly Lori weiner phd is a co-director of behavioral health corps and head of the psychosocial support and research program for the national institute of health as both a clinician and behavioral scientist dr weiner has dedicated her career to the fields of oncology and pediatric hiv aids dr jamie Brediani is a board certified oncologist who provides care for pediatric cancer patients in Orange County and is on staff at Children's Hospital of Orange County. Harry Casper is a clinical research coordinator with programs at the Children's Hospital of Orange County. We'll use the shorthand talk from here on. Lori Wiener comes to us today from Bethesda, Maryland. Kirsten and Jamie come from Orange County. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Lori Wiener, Kirsten Casper, and Dr. Jamie Frediani. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Well, let's first have Dr. Wiener offer a little background, I mean, a summary in the sense of the extensive work in developing this program that we're talking about from advanced care planning templates to advanced care planning to my thoughts and wishes, my vote, to the publication now available in so many languages all over the world, voicing my choices to voicing my choices, the program. So these are guides intended for healthcare providers, including physicians, nurses, social workers, chaplains, psychiatrists, and so- psychologists. Could you please offer a bit of a background summary, Dr. Weiner?
1: Sure. And thank you so much for having me. Most of what we do in clinical research really comes from and is informed by our experiences talking to our patients and their family members. And over the years, it became very clear to me that especially teens and young adults worry when they're diagnosed with a serious illness about what could happen if treatment one day doesn't work well. But these are thoughts that they have that they rarely share with their family members or with their friends. And family members may worry about the same thing as well, but there are thoughts that they don't necessarily share with their children because they don't want their child to think that they are being negative or afraid that treatment wouldn't work. And so at a critical time, you could have youth and their family members really living in emotional isolation from one another. And so I started with a focus groups with um, teens and young adults and asked them questions such as, do you think having a guide that was created by and for people your age could be useful? Things like how you would want to be supported or how you would want to be comforted if treatment wasn't working well or you just got very sick or needed a long time in the hospital, who you would want to have around with you. Um, And what if treatment doesn't work? How aggressively you might want to be treated? And overwhelmingly, people thought that that would be a great idea. So after two different focus groups, we took an existing document called Five Wishes, which was created for people 65 and older, and was widely available through an organization called Aging with Dignity. And we started another study where we had um, participants go through five wishes along with some of the items that came up from the focus groups and ask them for every single item if they would be appropriate for people their age, if there was anything missing, and if there was anything that should be added. And they gave very rich advice about what they think a document should look like. So we took what we learned and we created a new document just for research purposes called My Thoughts, My Wishes, My Voice. And we then opened it up to a larger cohort of patients to compare the original Five Wishes to this new document that was really addressing more about their independence, peer relationships, and just developmentally appropriate issues. And from that, we then developed another document called Voicing My Choices. So that's a very quick synopsis of many years of research with a few hundred adolescents and young adults. And yes,
0: it's just yes it was just in the interest of time that I asked you to to summarize that ever so briefly and that is it's a beautiful context to for listeners to follow where we're going to, uh, together today so I'd like I'm just wondering too probably the, the very the very act of participating in this I imagine there were some really their own clinical benefits for them contributing. It was probably really rich and really helpful for them as individuals to know this kind of help is on the way.
1: So I think a little bit more than help is on the way is a Way for people to be able to share some of the thoughts that they have. You know, those what ifs that happen, you know, when they go to sleep at night. What if my treatment isn't working? What if I get really sick? Um, How would my family survive? Um, What is going to be most important to me? What would that look like? those kind of questions, which they didn't really share with other people. So having a document that they could review this, knowing that other people their age are thinking about the same things, I think was very comforting. When we first started the study, we required participants to answer three questions about how comfortable they would be having these kinds of conversations. And overwhelmingly participants felt comfortable having these conversations. In fact, from those early studies, there was only one participant who wasn't comfortable and later became more comfortable having the conversation. And so it was really for them a gift to be able to know they could safely um, read and learn about what other people their age are thinking about. And talking about something doesn't make something happen they were also felt empowered that they were helping to create a document that other people their age would have the opportunity to complete. So,
0: Dr. Weiner, was this also a kind of a map for the patients to understand w- uh, where, where they're going? Some things they hadn't yet considered, and now it's a little bit more, it's clarifying for them to know what is ahead, what they could ask for.
1: So I think that there's a lot of anxiety that's associated with living with uncertainty. And, you know, it's a and and anxiety could be exhausting. And so once they had the opportunity to be able to put down what they would want, how they would want to be comforted, how they would want to be supported, who they would want to be with them, if they weren't going to survive, what they would want that to look like. Uh, It was a great relief for many people to have that behind them. They have it written down. They have that done. Now they can go on living their life. And you can always change it. Um, Voicing My Choices is not a legal document. It's a communication tool. So it wasn't as much a map as a way to be able to put down what's most important to them and what's most meaningful to them.
0: Okay, thank you. Dr. Bradiani, did you have something to contribute to that too? Or... Kirsten? I, I, I do.
2: I. This research is so beautiful because it comes out of a real need and an observation from the bedside. So we know these families, and really down to a much younger age than even Voicing My Choices reaches, have desire. They know that they're dying. They know that they have a terminal illness. They understand that this, you know, often even before the families understand, the patients understand what's going on. And giving them a degree of control and a degree of um, agency around that in a way that is facilitated by people who are willing to have that conversation in a way that maybe their parents or their significant others aren't, you know, aren't comfortable with or, or aren't ready for really lets them get to that space early And helps, like you said, give them a framework for knowing what they want and what they need. Um, And we have our patients, our young adults, our kids, you know, they have very distinct thoughts of what they want their funerals to look like, what they want their burial to look like. They have these thoughts already, and it's so important to help them be able to communicate that so they really feel like They have their wishes. The other really wise piece of advice I heard really young in my career, and one of our palliative care doctors taught it to me, is that once you get a family to that space, just have the whole conversation, right? And kind of have the tendency to dance in and then dance back out and duck out before, you know, thinking that maybe they're not ready. And this gives you the ability to kind of have the full conversation and you can always go back to it. But once you've had the full conversation, a lot of families feel this weight of like, okay, those decisions are made. Now I don't have to worry about that. Now I can focus on how do I live whatever time I have remaining? How do I keep fighting? How do I keep looking for treatments? All of those things are now can become the primary focus because you've taken this big unknown piece away from them. And I'm a big believer that the earlier we do and use tools like this and have these conversations, in our young adult patients, the better.
0: Because as Dr. Wieners was saying, anxiety is exhausting. So this can free up the bandwidth for any better kinds of circumstances for this terminally ill person. Yeah.
2: And you have to understand AYA um, medicine is so difficult because it's a time in their life where they are supposed to be independent, right? You're leaving for college. You're leaving your family and leaning into your friends. You're getting married. You're having kids. You're starting a new career. This is all happening in that adolescent and young adult time period that we're talking about. And so you now put cancer, you put this massive life event in the middle of that time period and you take away a lot of their agency. You take away a lot of their, you know, their certainty about their future and this just helps us give them one little piece of autonomy back um, in a world where they really don't have, you know, the amount of choices that their colleagues and their peers are having at this time and that their developmental stage really is kind of yearning for and wanting.
0: And Kirsten, did you also have something to add in your clinical coordinating?
3: Well, my involvement is so much in the weeds, so to speak. Um, so my talking one-on-one with the child or the young adult and their families for the study and seeing what is what they like and what they don't like, right? evaluating it. But these patients are usually at pretty stable positions in their health, which was what made it a good time to try to approach them. But even with those patients who've already come through therapy or are at the tail end of therapy, they still haven't had these conversations with their loved ones or their doctors or their friends. And they have lots of opinions and they want to have these conversations, but nobody knows when is the right time to talk about it. So it would seem to me that today is the right time to talk about it because there's never going to be a good time.
0: Well, it's kind of an in the weeds question while we're still there is this document that is not, as you said, it's not hard and fast. It can continually update and all that. So, where is this physically? And is and does is this something that's shared when people are attending to this patient? I mean, what? I'm just curious. What? You know what? Where is this tool?
1: You'd want me to answer that one. Yes, that would be fine. So, I think there's two parts to it. The first part is the actual clinical trials that are still ongoing, which you are talking to a site that has been actively involved in the different iterations of Voicing My Choices, and it's been so instrumental for the development of this, of the Voicing My Choices document. So in addition to the clinical research and the people who participate in that, It is being used. It has been requested by over 55,000 people in 42 different countries. It was never meant to be just handed out, though. It was never meant, to oh, here's a document, go complete this. It wow. was meant to be used as a communication tool. So for some adolescents or young adults, they may only care about the page that really addresses their pain or the things that they want to have in their room or you know who they want to visit them or not visit them. They may only care about whether they get cremated or buried or how they're remembered on certain days. They may only really be most concerned about their spirituality and how that is addressed. So they may choose certain pages that are most meaningful for them and to have a clinical staff member or or somebody else that's close to them to be able to review those pages with them and to give them the opportunity to complete them. And then it's up to them to be able to share the document. I think, as you just heard, um, it, it does give them a sense of agency. Sometimes families are so appreciative because they didn't know how to start this conversation. It is something, as I said earlier, that they do think about. And so when they could see what their child or what their spouse or what their significant other put down, it allows them to pave a road to have this conversation. And we recommend they don't just have this conversation about them. They should have it about the person who's with them. Do they even know what their parent or their spouse or their friend would want if they became seriously ill? Probably not. So it allows a conversation to happen about things that most people don't talk about.
0: For those of you who've just joined us, my guests are Dr. Lori Wiener at the National Institute of Health and Kirsten Kasper and Dr. Jamie Frediani, both at Children's Hospital of Orange County. All collaborating in building a guide, a program that offers options, communication guides as the patients contend with terminal illnesses. So you're all saying, in terms of timing, that the earlier, the better, and it sort of sets a tone. It sets it sets many things for uh, how people will interact. But as you said, care. Providers and family members and friends and that kind of thing. So I I think I think we've talked about that. Was is there more about the timing to bring this and who who brings the guide a possibility in the study that you're doing? How are you tweaking that?
1: Well, I could talk about overall, and then I think that you could hear about how different sites introduced this study. I don't think voicing my choices was ever geared to people who are only terminally ill. I do want to make that clear. Okay. Something that could be used by anyone who's living with a chronic illness and anybody who's worried about treatment not working for them. Um, I highly recommend it before going into a very aggressive treatment that has an uncertain outcome. For example, bone marrow transplant. That could be a very risky procedure and hopefully will have a positive outcome, but we don't always know. So being able to complete the pages that are most important prior to a procedure like that, I think could be very, very useful. In terms of who is eligible to participate in the study, it could be anyone. Um, the earliest studies were looking at ages 16 and up. The current study, right now, comparing the original Voicing My Choices to a newly adapted one, and we're looking at ages 18 to 39, which the National Cancer Institute provides as a range of adolescents and young adults, affectionately known as AYAs. So we ask anyone that is here at our site that is between those ages that is enrolled in a phase one, phase two trial, if they would like to participate in the study. But go ahead and you'll hear from talk about how they enroll patients there. Please. Yes. Dr. Frediani.
2: So, yeah, I I agree with Dr. I think there's two pieces to this. You know, the first is, you know, how do we enroll for the clinical trial? And for that, you know, we screen all of our patients who are coming in every Two weeks, Kirsten and I have a meeting where we talk about, you know, which patients are, you know, in the eligible population who we want to target for approaching. And then we approach them, whether they're inpatient or outpatient. And we use, you know, I use myself and my colleagues and kind of the knowledge of where the patient's at to make sure that it's an appropriate time or that they're in a good place. And then we, you know, either Kirsten or I approach the family and discuss the consent with them. Um, And then Kirsten will actually work through the void. If they consent to the clinical trial, then Kirsten will work through the voicing my choices with them, obviously with myself around if the conversation merits uh, another voice or another attending involved. I think the other piece is really interesting when you talk about timing, you know we live in a culture that does that values and places all the value on living and living a very long time. You know, it places value in success and achievement. And so I I tend to find most people don't want to talk about death and dying, even when faced with a chronic illness or faced with a devastating diagnosis, even if they have a good chance of survival. Nobody really wants to talk about the the what if, what if I die? What if I pass? And I think by presenting it early, when we talk about timing, when we talk about when we should be getting this in the rooms, the reason early is better is it just destigmatizes it, right? When it becomes a... This is something we do with every adolescent and young adult patient. We want to present this to you. And whether that's social work, it's our psychology team or our palliative care team or the primary oncologist I think all four are very capable of presenting and working through this document with the families outside of the clinical research setting. I think when you can present it up front, then it takes all that stress around it. And it's a much easier conversation than when you're in a moment of crisis. And I've never regretted presenting it early, but I have definitely regretted having an adolescent and young adult be emergently intubated in the ICU and me not knowing what that patient would want and looking to the family and hoping that they knew enough of what this patient wanted that we can guide their wishes. So I've never regretted presenting it early, but I have regretted not knowing in a moment of this acute crisis that we couldn't predict. Um, And I think that that's really important. We do not do it perfectly here. I think um, that's a very pie in the sky idea that we're, you know, we're working towards and we're growing towards and we're trying to find out the ways and the, you know, the best ways to do that in the day to day science of being a physician. Um, But that's my ultimate goal is that a young adult would walk into our hospital, we'd give them the diagnosis, and we would then in the next couple days have that conversation. Because I, I really, really value the conversation. And I know that adolescents and young adults are getting um, just such rich conversation around this, as Dr. Wiener pointed out, and the families, right? They don't want to be the one to bring this up, but they need it as much as anybody. Um, And so I just think this work is so incredibly important and valuable, and the discussions are needed and necessary. And anything we as our team can do to facilitate that, and that's why we love working with Dr. Wiener, that the work that she's doing allows us to continue to get better at how do we deliver this to our patients. So listening to the
0: timing and all this, so I'm It's kind of delicate because, I mean, when we're older and we're getting procedures and we know when the advanced directives request comes in before we have the procedure done. So some people might be mistaking this guide as an advanced directive. It's not. Correct. But that might be a little bit of a projection that might complicate the opening
1: the opening bid to offer a guide in this research program. That is correct. Most hospitals, um, in fact, all hospitals will have their own advanced directive requirements, some state based, some hospital based. But there are pages within Voicing My Choices where the participant can document who they want to make decisions for them and how aggressively they would want to be treated. And in fact, the biggest change, I think, from the first, the original version of the document to the current version is on the page of um, life support questions. And if you want to be happy to talk about- them,
0: Please, in- well, please do. Since we're talking, as Dr. Frediani is bringing up this, the culture of the denial that death is inevitable, but, but amidst that
1: that kind of culture, yes, I would like to know what how that's broken down. So the original version allows a person to be able to put down who they would want to make decisions for them but it didn't have all the specifics such as a person's email address, their relationship to them, but there really are many changes on that particular page. But on the page about how aggressively they would wanna be treated, originally there were two different scenarios, both of which if a person was close to death um, or if they um, had brain damage. And when the participants went through the study, they and went through the document they have a lot of concerns about that page because they may be going into a procedure or going into a treatment where they're very much hoping to survive. And so they wanted to be able to have an option there that is for um, what they would want in terms of life support if they are expected or anticipating to survive. Now, some people may still not want to ever have life support, so they have that option. And so we now have three different scenarios. The first is if they anticipate surviving. The second is if they find themselves in a situation where their treatment is not going to be working for them or they do have brain damage. Um, So it was really reflects the first version. But the third is let's say they decided that they do want to have everything done you know, and they want to be on life support. But weeks go by or maybe months go by and the treatment's not working. If they put down, they want full life support. The ICU is stuck. That's what they wanted, right? But now they have the option with that third scenario to say, if I'm on life support and nothing, and this is not working, I want to have the opportunity to be able to review my goals of care What to have my person that I asked to be able to make those decisions for me to review my goals of care. And I think that's going to be something that um, will be very helpful for adolescents and young adults um, as time goes on. And so far at this phase of the study, it has been almost unanimously um, agreed that that is an improvement over the original version.
0: So in this delicate area are different kinds of neurocognitive capacities as uh, I think it was in the rare diseases talk that Dr. Wiener participated in, and this was brought up, I believe. How do you deal with all of those uh, different capacities, neurocognitive capacities in dealing with consent and and giving everybody an opportunity to have that agency?
1: You guys want to take it for what you do over a chat?
0: Dr. Frediani and then Kirsten?
2: In the setting of the clinical trial, we really try to make sure that the the patient would be able to understand all the questions around it because the clinical trial is really looking at the older version and the newer version and working through the document with the young adults and trying to get their feedback and input so we can continue to make the document better. Um, and for that, I really feel like maximizing, you know, the patient's ability to understand what we're asking is really important. In terms of the everyday clinical setting, You know, I I think it's the, I don't have a great answer, but I think that at the end of the day, it's, it's everything we do as a physician, right? It's, it's adjusting how you tell a patient that they have a new diagnosis based on their developmental status. And we adapt and we change to that, you know, 150 times a day with every patient. And, and so by knowing our patients, a lot of times I can kind of know and guide which pieces or how to phrase different things within the document in a way that allows them to interact and to address it, even if it's not the exact same as I would do for somebody who was, you know, an Ivy League scholar at 23. And so just, you know, we constantly adapt our languaging and our understanding of events, and then let the patient guide back to us their understanding, because sometimes they surprise me, right? I may kind of bring it down to a level and they come back to me with a very eloquent response. And I go, Oh, they understand more about this than I'm thinking they are. And then we can, you know, then we can take it one step further and one step further. And so there's not an easy way to do it, right? There's not an easy answer of how do you adapt, you know, how do you adapt this guideline for different developmental spaces and abilities? But I do think that that comes very naturally just in what we do in everyday life and in knowing the patient's.
0: And does it come through their responses? Does it come through the capacity they're operating at? So it doesn't look like there's coaching, but it's a like it's it's an authentic read of their capacity. It comes through in the language.
2: Yeah, I, I think it does. I think that even, you know, we we just had a young man who um was a young adult and he was autistic, and and there was definitely certain things he wouldn't have been able to kind of, you know, grasp as a whole concept. But when you had these conversations, he did very clearly have opinions um, and very clearly knew some things that he wanted and didn't want and then knew what he wanted to defer to his parents, all of which is very appropriate in this, you know, kind of in the context of this conversation. They don't need to know everything. They don't need to know everything they want. They need to know what they have an opinion of And they need to know what they trust somebody else to make the decision of. And if they develop an opinion later, then we can change that, right? We can just, like we keep talking about, you're going to change that in real time as you grow and evolve and as your disease changes, as you get more maturity from the diagnosis. And so I think both pieces are equally important. And that really plays into capacity and your ability to do it. It's also the other reason it's so important to do this early, right? It's important to do this early before they have a devastating stroke before they, you know, start getting, you know, start having a lot of pain, right? Pain really alters our ability to have conversation. Pain meds really alter our ability to have good, deep conversations. So the earlier we can present this, you know, kind of the healthier they are, the the better they're feeling, the the more optimal the conversation gets to be.
0: And does perhaps the early measure clarify their thinking? I understand how Pain relief is going to maybe kind of dull in the capacity, but but thinking early about this, it gives them a chance to sort of clarify where they really are as they continue along. Yeah. Yes, I absolutely agree.
1: And it allows them to be a partner in their care. Yes. We'll I know just, you, you're... Uh, yes, Kirsten?
3: Oh, I was... Um, I mean, Dr. Frediani and Dr. Wiener have said it so eloquently, but from my exposure with um, the adults who, for the purposes of study, need to be English speakers and English readers, because I really need them to look at these pages closely and compare them. Um, but so many of them came to me going, oh, well, I have never even thought of this. I didn't know this was an option. I didn't know this was possible. And then there were others who said, well, this piece is missing. What am I going to do with my pets? What is going to happen to them, who's going to take care of them. And it's very important for them to know that those, all the things they love will be taken care of. And then we had a, a gentleman who has neuropathy, has numbness and tingling in his fingers and said how much he would appreciate an electronic version to be mm-hmm. able to use since um, writing was more of a challenge for him and typing was easier. So there's, until you start looking at the document, you don't even realize what you don't know. And then all of a sudden, you do have a very clear opinion of what you want and what you don't want. And for the younger one, for the ones who don't have the cognitive um, space to do this, there's also the five wishes. And there's things that the social workers use with the younger children that you can use for that different population to be able to get what they want appropriately.
1: And oh, this because...
0: is so, yes, Dr. Dr. Wiener.
1: I was going to say, and because of your wonderful work you have done, that issue about pets is now in the new version of Voicing My Choices.
0: So it's always changing. The, the protocol is set up so that you can keep changing what is going into this guide.
1: We hope this will be, um, this next version will be the version that will be existing for quite some time.
0: And as the matter of different languages is brought up, there I, get, I understand there's a, an English and a Spanish version right now and so the it's the patient's language not necessarily the uh maybe family members that are other non they're non-english speakers
1: so the um, voicing my choices is currently available in english spanish and italian and we are working with um, different cultures to do a cultural a proper cultural adaptation Words have very different meaning in different languages, so you can't just translate them just by translating the words. It really takes a lot of work and several years of studies to have a true cultural adaptation of the document, and we're working very closely with um, colleagues in Brazil, in Beijing, and also in Australia. And you know, while Australia is English-speaking, different words have different meanings there as well. I'm looking for a Muslim
0: version is, I mean, that that's come up, I'm sure.
1: Yeah. And that is something that we hope we'll have some partners over time to be able to work with them, to help them with that cultural adaptation.
0: So speaking of adaptations and language and nuance and all that, that was raised in a different part of that rare disease conference that patients are shielded from pragmatic language addressing care because there's an importance of distinguishing between this pragmatic language and what maybe family members think are negative thoughts that they're trying to sort of protect the patients from. How can you bring up, can you uh, talk to that very
1: uh, large domain of concern? Are you referring to Conversations about advanced care planning or just overall treatment? Uh, either, either one that seems to be a, a conundrum for
0: for you to, to manage in this project.
1: I think some of what you heard at the rare um, disease day is um, some very articulate um, young adults talking about the challenges of transitioning from a pediatric setting to an adult setting where in a pediatric setting, they may be coddled more, they've been um, always had a family member with them that helped make decisions for them that they didn't necessarily always had to take responsibility to understand their treatments or their condition, um, and then they turn a certain age and they're expected to sign consents, to be able to make decisions on their own, to transition to adult physicians who don't necessarily have the same time or, psychosocial type of um, mentality to be able to help them master their illness. And that is a very challenging um, type of transition for many, yeah. many adolescents um, who then become young adults. And settings have recognized this. MIH um, had a whole workshop on this, and a lot more work needs to take place. And there's some wonderful organizations like Got Transition that now have transition readiness. Instruments to be able to start early and to be able to make sure that adolescents and young adults are able to become adults who can master and to be able to manage their disease well. Um, that they don't fall between that cracks. So Voicing My Choices, again, we started at age 16 in the earlier studies. Um, this version right now is, a, is an older starting at age 18. But there are pages for sure within um, Voicing My Choices that are appropriate for a younger person. And you raised in terms of different developmental, you know, uh, capabilities. And I think you got a very eloquent response about that. But remember, Voicing My Choices is about... A place where you could say what makes you feel supported a place to write what decisions bring you peace a place to choose what provides you the most comfort and a place to voice your thoughts and needs so just talking about if you come to the hospital and being able to say what i would want to have in my room i think that any child or teen could be able to speak to that to be able to say how you want to be supported um, or care for it if you're in pain, or if you're irritable, or if you're nauseous, or if you're cold, or who you want to be with you, I think that transcends any developmental age. You can pick and choose the different items based on their development where they can really have a say, where they could be able to document what's most important to them. And as you heard, it's important to revisit this. Because when you're newly diagnosed with something that could be potentially life-threatening, pretty overwhelming. And the way you think about things may change when you understand your condition better, you've had experience with it over time. And so these are topics that are important to be able to revisit over time.
0: And also with that distinguishing between palliative care and hospice care, is that does that come through that kind of language in the guide?
1: The guide doesn't ask or inquire about palliative care or hospice care. Palliative care should be available for any person who is having distressing symptoms or is suffering. Um, The field has grown tremendously. Hospice is only meant for end of life. So palliative care, we have a psychosocial standard of care with a lot of evidence behind it should be introduced soon after a diagnosis or with any distressing symptoms, regardless of disease outcome. Hospice is something that you would introduce at end of life, per se. And that
2: conversation is, in in my mind, intimately tied to how I think about voicing my choices. We, and a lot of my thoughts about it come from my experience of how the medical field has shifted, particularly in pediatrics, to the viewpoint of palliative care. So in pediatrics, we're very privileged that we can do concurrent palliative care with active treatment, which is different when you get to the adult world and adult hospital. Some of the rules change. But in pediatric medicine, I can present palliative care at diagnosis to certain diagnoses that I know are you know, longer hospitalizations, they have more pain, they have more nausea, there's kind of more symptom management needed, and they have a higher risk of relapse. So getting them in early. um, So for example, I I take care of all leukemias, but I also take care of all the acute myeloid leukemias that come through chalk. And AML patients spend about six months in the hospital um, with some very, very short breaks at home in between. And these kids get can be pretty sick. A lot of them do very wonderfully. It's It's actually a decently curable disease. But the road to getting there can be very, very rough. So I work with my palliative care team that every single AML that comes through my door at diagnosis meets our palliative care team. And they take the journey with them and that has absolutely changed my AML's experience but it came from us setting the tone that palliative care is just another member of the team right this is just something we do this is an extra layer of support these people will walk the journey with you and it's it's destigmatizing that this is end of life right this means your kid is going to die and i actually will say those words to families i am not doing this because i think your kid is going to die I'm doing this because I think they are a huge layer of support and will really help you guys in this journey. And when you frame it that way, when you phrase things in that way, the families visibly relax. And universally, I've had families come to me and say, oh, that, "That I'm so glad we got to know them. They've been so helpful. They've been so wonderful. And the palliative care team has come to me and said, this is fabulous because I'm not meeting them in crisis. I can start laying the groundwork for all these hard conversations. I I already have rapport and relationship with the family when something significant happens where we're making these hard decisions. And to me, I view the same, to bring it back to voicing my choices, I think as we work to build this better into our medical system, that this is something that is offered to every patient and is worked through with every patient that walks through our door in whatever age appropriate you know format is necessary for them i think that's really the gold standard because as we've talked about these these children these young adults they know they have these desires they have significantly more wisdom and understanding than we often give them credit for and the earlier we have these conversations and make it not a big deal The more rich our relationship as a provider and as a care team is going to be with these families and really the better we can serve them. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. I want them to feel loved and taken care of and part of our team and a partner in their medical care. That's what's important. Um, Obviously, we want to cure every kid, but we know that kids do better when their mental health is taken care of. Um, And we know that's a really important piece. And I think voicing my choices is such an important piece of that entire bigger equation. And as we slowly chip at those different pieces, our care is going to get better and better for these patients.
0: For those of you who've just joined us, my guests are Dr. Lori Wiener at the National Institute of Health and Dr. Jamie Frediani and Kirsten Kassler, both at the Children's Hospital of Orange County, and they're all collaborating and developing a communication guide for adolescents and young adults contending with terminal or chronic illnesses. Well, I'd I'd like to know, I mean, it's it's a little bit off maybe of the patient's radar, but it's something that the parents are dealing with is attending to their, their offspring, with the terminal or the chronic illness and then they go home and then they're, they're slammed with the an, in, enormous medical bills. And so I don't know if, if the patient's guidelines are tracking with this whole financial aspect.
2: Financial toxicity in the financial toxicity around medical care is a growing field of research. Um, it is a space that there are many very talented researchers across the country coming together to try to figure out the actual effect of it. Earlier, we talked about how this is such an important time in patients' life. So in adolescent and young adult medicine specifically, this is a time where they're supposed to be starting to get their jobs, going to college, having their first careers, starting to save for retirement. And you now take all of that away and wipe out probably any savings they have. And they're leaning on their family members for any savings they have. So it's it's a very real problem. Um, And I think we are only beginning to scratch the surface of understanding the the depth of it. And unfortunately, I think we're still far away from starting to figure out some solutions for how we do better. Um, But it is a huge burden that our adolescents and young adults carry. Um, and they carry it long after diagnosis. So it's not just the acute period of treatment. You think these young adults, they have years of follow-up, years of appointments and scans and all of those things, which um, those continue to add up. And our medical system is not set up to care for them. And we're very fortunate when they're less than 18, that in general, we can get them cared for. But that 18 to 30 age range, it is really, really sensitive and very, very difficult in terms of financial toxicity. And we just need to do better. The bottom line is we as a medical community need to do better. And the beginning is putting the numbers and putting them together and getting the research that we can then take that to states and governments and insurance companies and say, this is a problem. How do we do better? Um, and unfortunately, we're not there yet, but I'm I'm really proud to say as a community, um, the adolescent and young adult community is very invested in continuing to pursue this work and figuring out how we can do better.
0: That was Dr. Frediani. I'd like to hear also from Dr. Wiener and from Kirsten about that. It's that huge, huge area.
1: Thank you. Um, financial toxicity and assessing for families, financial Needs is also another evidence-based psychosocial standard of care. It's important to be able to assess their financial needs at the time of diagnosis, throughout treatment, and after treatment. I can't tell you how devastating it is for a family that um, has lost a child to then still be getting bills years down the road to be able to pay for that child's care or even funeral. Um, It's a critically important um, consideration. And also, um, many are on their parents insurance until the age of 26. And then after that becomes their own responsibility. And that becomes another challenge and sometimes a crisis for the patient and for the family. Well, um, we have just a few more
0: minutes together. I would just like to avail you remaining time to direct our attention to what we have missed here, because you're the experts and in this absolutely essential work that you're doing.
1: One thing I'd just like to add is that you talked about the timing, um, and you heard quite eloquently about the importance of early integration and to early discussions from Dr. Frediani. If you wait until somebody is um, short of breath, considering going to the ICU, end of life, referring to hospice, you've waited too long. You've really lost an opportunity to have very, very meaningful conversations. You can't think clearly in the middle of a crisis or make decisions that way. Giving people time to think about talk with other people and reflect on what's most important to them and to have a chance to be able to revisit that is truly a gift. And the other gift is for families to know what their child or the patient may want. I've heard over and over again, and I'm sure that you have it, Chuck, as well, from families down the road that are able to say thank you. You should, if you hadn't seen what happened at the funeral, everyone was dressed in orange because that's what she put down in Voicing My Choices. Or we went back home and we did all of our care there because that's what he documented he wanted in Voicing My Choices. Or on the anniversary of um, of her death, we go every year to Applebee's because that's what she wanted us to be able to do, which was in Voicing My Choices The decisions that we made were based on what he or she put down in the document. So it gives them an opportunity to make decisions that are based on the person's true wishes. And it gives them a special stamp of approval to be able to know they're doing what the person valued and wanted most. And that gives families such a tremendous feeling of peace.
0: That was wonderful. Dr. Frediani? Yeah, I have I have two things. I, I think
2: first, I, I really want to underline how different adolescent and young adult medicine is. They're not big kids and they're not little adults. And the more we as a field, we as families, we as providers can continue to think of them as this really unique and special population that is so rewarding and beautiful to serve, but also so difficult, right? It's such an incredibly difficult time to have cancer thrown into your life. It's always hard to have cancer, but this particular time really uproots so much of their core identity that I I, I just really challenge us to continue as a community to think about this population differently, to think about the ways we support them differently, the way that we serve them, the hospitals, the way we design treatment for them, it all needs to be thought about very specifically to this young adult population because they are unique and they are incredibly special. The second thing I want to say is we've spent a lot of time talking today about adolescent and young adults and about this beautiful project that we are doing in collaboration with the team that you have here. However, I do feel so strongly that the further I get into medical My medical career, the more I realize that these conversations are so hard but are so fruitful. And I really, really encourage anybody who's listening today who probably has never even thought about whether or not this conversation was important to spend some time thinking about it. And if you are so inclined, talking to the people you love, because it is not too early To have these conversations. We do not know when... I I don't know when my time is coming. I don't know if I'm going to get into a car accident tomorrow and have my family or my fiance have to make life-threatening decisions about my life. Um, And if I've never taken the opportunity to have those conversations, even in an unofficial way, I I lose something. Because as as, it was just so beautifully highlighted the families get great joy in knowing that they're doing something that's a little bit of a wink to the person that they lost and that they loved. Right. Let me go to Applebee's. Let me just, let me just smile and laugh that that's something that would have given you joy. And I, I I really encourage us as a culture to continue to shift that narrative away from being scared of our own mortality and really being able to embrace um, that even In death, there are some really, really beautiful things to our life, Um, and we can continue to have impact and meaning and love and connection with our family, but only if we're brave enough to take the time now to have those conversations.
0: Thank you. That was beautiful. Kirsten, you too.
3: Well, just to sort of add on to what Dr. Frediani said, it's to sort of separate this document from an illness that this is a document you can talk about with your family at your next family dinner with at any time. It doesn't have to be attached to a crisis. Um, and it can actually be a, an enjoyable conversation because I do try to do this with my young adults who are 23 and 27 to make sure we communicate this and everybody understands what everybody wants.
0: Well, I am going to bring up with a gerontologist the death over dinner sort of movement. So this is a great segue, but well, I haven't scheduled it yet, but it is going to be a continuation of a previous interview I did with her earlier this month. So thank you ladies for your time today and your stellar work advancing the critical needs of so many vulnerable young people. And as you say, and all people, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank for you n-
0: so much for having us.
1: Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you,
0: Claudia. My guests were Dr. Lori Wiener at the National Institute of Health, Dr. Jamie Frediani, and Kirsten Casper at the Children's Hospital of Orange County. Along with this, I'd like to announce for those in the Calabasas-Thousand Oaks area, there is a fundraiser. It's called Jazzin with the Kids 2023, helping the youth of L.A. and Ventura counties who are dealing with terminal illness. I believe it's one of they, they say that they are one of the only hospice for that's folks, babies, babies to uh, to 21, I believe. So it's a it's a very rare program. But anyway, on April 16th, 3 to 6 p.m., it's a Sunday. You can go to that event All the details for that April 16 event are at the website lovinghomehospice.org forward slash events. And a shout out to those that are listening from that organization today to this program. Well, that's my wrap. Next week, Randall Crane will talk in his capacity as recently elected director of Division 5 of the Municipal Water District of Orange County about all the water issues that we can hit him up with. Since, folks, the drought is not over. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.